I had a friend who, well, I say a friend, an acquaintance who met Billy Graham. And Billy Graham, if you haven't heard of him, was an evangelist who, they estimate, spoke to two billion people in his lifetime. Crazy, right? That's through media and TV, but also through kind of speaking at theaters and auditoriums and stadiums. And there's one occasion where he spoke to 1.1 million people sitting down in front of him in an airstrip. The guy had a phenomenal ministry. Two billion people were ridiculous. And my friend said to me, you know, what piece of advice would you give to me? What piece of advice would you give to me as an up-and-coming leader? What, what after all these years would you say I need to learn? And he said, life's quick. Life's quick. And I was like, whoa, whoa, that's, that's flipping groundbreaking that thanks Billy well I call him Billy that's how we kind of roll and he's passed away so that's probably not appropriate but anyway he said life's quick and the reason he said that is because our life on earth we only get one shot at it and are we going to live like a mediocre lukewarm life are we going to lead a life of adventure and courage and risk and faith are we going to lead a life of excitement What does it look like for us to have this faith where we're saying, I'm all in. I don't want this lukewarm or wet or tame Christianity. I want to be all out, sold out for you, Jesus. So in Hebrews 11, I'm not going to go through a whole passage. It's a huge passage. I'm just going to refer to it. And what happens in Hebrews 11 is that it comes after Hebrews 10, which will, you know, blow your mind, really. So it goes Hebrews 9, 10, 11, Yeah, that's kind of how it rolls. But Hebrews 10 is all about focusing on Jesus and saying, you know, he's the one. He lived and died and rose again. Are you willing to follow him? He lived an incredible life. He did this. It's going to be hard. There's going to be trouble. There's going to be conflict. But are you willing to follow in his footsteps? And it's totally worth it because of who he is and what he's done and how he's lived and died for you. And then Hebrews 11 goes on to say, okay, so that's what you've heard. And here's these heroes of the faith who have done this. And this isn't like their story. This is our story. For those of us who follow Jesus, this is the story of a Christian faith. This is the story of God's people throughout history, right? This is our story. And it's called the Hall of Faith because these heroes who lived and followed Jesus no matter what the cost, who lived for God and said, look, this person is worth living for and he's worth dying for. So I'm just going to skim over some of the characters. I'm not going to mention all of them, but these are men and women who, according to Paul, the probable writer of Hebrews, a bit debatable that one is Zach, but we'll go, we'll go for Paul. And he probably wrote it, although it's not certain, but assuming he did write it, he's saying, look, these are people we want to be like. These are the people who modeled what faith in God is like. So first of all, we have Abel, who was killed by his brother Cain because he wanted to give a pure and the best sacrifice to his father. He wanted to show complete obedience and a pure heart before his God. He wanted pure motives, and his brother killed him for it. Then there was Noah, who was told by God that there would be this huge flood, and despite people sneering and laughing at him and making a fool of him, he built this ark and said, look, I believe that God is going to allow this flood to happen. I will trust in him. I will build this ark, despite being a laughingstock. Then Abraham, it talks around, Abraham, who was, after years of prayerful expectation, was given a son, Isaac. And God said to him, I want you to go and sacrifice your son, Isaac, his one and only son. And he showed real obedience. He showed real trust in God. He trusted God's power and was prepared to kill his only son. And at the last minute, God said, no, hold on. But he knew that Abraham's faith had been tested and proven true. 
And then his wife, Sarah, had to trust that God would, be in her, in, God would provide a baby for her in his, her 90s. In her 90s, it seemed beyond belief that God had promised her a child, and he, she had to trust in him. And with Abraham, they had a child. And God said to him, look, you will be the people who have ancestors throughout generations. Your descendants will be more numerous than the stars in the sky. And they were the lead people who the ancestry came through and eventually came to Jesus. Abraham and Sarah, real life of faith. And then Joseph, it talks around, Joseph, so sure that his people would come to the promised land, that his people would get there after he's died, that he gave him really clear and concise instructions. He said, when you get there, this is what you'll do with my body. He said, you'll get to the promised lands. I'm convinced about that. This is what you'll do with my body. And it built the, fuss, the trust and the faith of those who followed him. The subsequent faith of those who followed him was increased because he was so sure that they'd reach the promised land. Then there was Moses. Moses, who could have, as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, lived a life of glamour and prestige and privilege, but chose to stand up for the people of Egypt. He managed to went to hard places for God. He said, look, I'm willing to take these people to the promised land. I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I'm willing to face the wilderness. I'm willing to face the challenge of the people because I'd rather take the tough road for God and live an easy life. Then Rahab, the prostitute, giving us all a glimmer of hope. But no matter how broken and sinful we feel, we know that our faith can still be realized through God. And finally, David. David, the king who, despite being chased and attempted to be killed for his faith by his own son, he said, for I will lie down and sleep. I will completely trust that God is in, char in charge. Whereas we would want to constantly fix things, he trusted that God had his hand on his life. And there's numerous other men and women in this passage, but this is our story. These are the people who we're building our faith upon. When we come to church this evening, it's not just this little community in Edinburgh. It's years and years since Jesus and people before Jesus that have lived and died for the sake of God in heaven. What does it look like for us to be part of this story, to be part of this journey? As we go through these characters, and there's many of them in the Hebrews Hall of Faith saying, look, these are the legends. These are the people we want to be like. These are the people we want to follow and, and become like because they have the ultimate trust and faith in God. What is it that united them? And I want to just pull out a few things that I think really united them and made them men and women of faith. First of all, in Hebrews 11:2, it says that, that it was faith that they were commended for. They lived by faith and not by fear. You see, all they really had was faith. And I wonder, in the developed world, we've lost something of that. In developed nations, often the first port of call is to, to pray and to take steps of faith. But where our education and our science and medicine has improved, we don't have the same desire to go first to God. But that's all they had. It was their faith they were commended for. And they lived by faith and not by fear. They, they went regardless of the cost. They went regardless of the unknown. Who's been watching SES, Who Dares Wins? I think it finished. Anyone watching that? It's perfect. It was just me and you. Great. We've enjoyed it. Cool. Okay. We've loved it, right? So it's great because always on after church, you get home from church, have some cheese and wine, and you can watch Who Dares Wins. But it's about SAS soldiers, and one of the guys who's actually an SBS soldier who sort of leads the show, I've actually read his autobiography, well, started reading his autobiography. And the guy, Ant Middleton, says one of the things he learned very quickly in the SBS is this, that when you have courage and conviction to go for something, 
When you're absolutely certain you're meant to do something, you don't worry about the consequences and implications. You don't worry about what the outworking of that is because as soon as you pause and focus on that stuff, as soon as you go into a situation and literally prepare to shoot and risk your life as an SBS soldier, he says, as soon as you doubt and weigh up your options, you've lost it. These guys live by faith and not by fear. They went no matter what the cost, no matter what the sacrifice. If God said jump, they said how high. They lived by faith and not by fear. They didn't allow the fear or the unknown to limit them. The second thing I want to just pull out is that they lived on fire for God and not held back by questions and doubts. They all died on fire for God. They all died really on fire for God. Jacob, it says in Hebrews 11, died worshipping on his staff, was still totally in love with God on his last days. What does it look like for us to keep going on fire for God? We'll have questions, we'll have doubts, we'll have struggles, but to keep going and saying, despite of those struggles, despite of those questions, despite of those doubts, I will follow you and I will put you first. Our default, my default, can always be to say, what if, why, how? rather than just to focus on the prize and the focus that is Jesus. One of the things I love about the disciple Thomas is, Thomas was known as a doubting disciple because he always doubted and questioned and always struggled. There's a really powerful piece of scripture where he says, let's go and die with Jesus. In spite of the questions, in spite of the challenges, in spite of the struggles, still wrestling with this stuff, he was prepared to go and die with Jesus. We will have questions. We will have doubts. I sometimes wonder that actually the way we work out the questions and the doubts is by taking the step of faith and working it out as we go. We want all the answers before we take the step of faith, but I wonder sometimes if actually we take the step of faith and then we work out the questions and the struggles en route. Even on the day that we reach our deathbed, we'll still have things that we're not quite sure about, still things that didn't make sense. But what does it look like for us to live by faith and not be restricted by questions and doubts? And we also see with all of these guys in the hall of faith, they lived a life of faith and risk and not convenience and safety. They followed Jesus whatever it cost. In Hebrews 11, I haven't read it because it's a huge passage, but it talks about all the things they went through. Some of them, not all of them, but some of them got sword in two. It's not happened to me, but that's not ideal, right? That's not a good thing to happen. The cost of sacrifice was real. These guys understood that following Jesus could be risky, could be challenging. How easy is it for me, how easy is it for us to live a life of convenience and safety and not a life of risk and challenge? God's grace is such that no matter where we find ourselves tonight, no matter how we feel, God is just grateful that we follow him and he never puts expectations on pressures on us. But our best life is saying, look, I'll give you my all. I will pay whatever cost it is. I will do whatever it is to follow you and to give you my all. Because so easily I know my trajectory can be one of convenience and safety and comfort. I was thinking about this recently and how what happens is, this is, of course, a broad brushstroke, but we can go through life and as children, for those of us who've been around church, we go to songs, you know, to church and we kind of sing, you know, who built the ark, Noah, and all that kind of stuff. I've got a really good singing voice, so maybe take a photo and a video, that'd be cool, actually. But 
really good, like, we learn the stories, we learn the songs, and we kind of get the head knowledge, and, you know, my son Jensen just absorbs it. And then we get to youth, right, and again, it's just kind of broad brushstrokes, but we kind of think, oh, you know, do I want to play football, do I want to date girls or boys, or do I want to follow Jesus? And of course, you can do both, but you can have these wrestles, you know, how serious is my faith? What does it really mean to follow Jesus? Then we get to students, right, and any students here tonight? It must be some of us, yeah? Yeah, cool. Four, awesome. So when we get to students, we... That was such a Carl joke. Anyway, um, then we get to that's it. Oh, I'm, I'm off. Then, then we get to student age, and we think, right, we're going to see everyone in the city come to know Jesus, and it's going to happen this week, right? We're going to change the world this week. We're going to end world poverty tonight. It's going to happen tonight. We have this kind of radical, deep faith. But then, if you're anything like me, you can start to live a life where you settle down and take it easy and start to be comfortable. What does it look like for me, for us, to be people who constantly take steps of faith out of our comfort zones, live lives of adventure and risk and courage? We shouldn't feel judged by that. We shouldn't feel condemned, but we should feel encouraged by God to constantly live and adventure until our last days on earth. It's so easy to constantly fall back into a life of convenience and safety. But what does it say to me, to to us, to say, look, I'm going to take more risks, more steps of courage, despite the cost. And the final thing we see, so we see that they they live a life of faith and not fear. They live on fire for God, despite the questions and the doubts. And they follow Jesus, whatever the cost, in spite of convenience and safety. The final thing we see is they live for Jesus' approval and not the approval of others. They live solely for the audience of one. You see, so many of these, almost all of the guys in the Hall of Faith, didn't see the fruits of their labor. They were celebrated and congratulated in this book for things that happened after they died. It even says in verse 38 that the world was not worthy of them. They lived with an eternal perspective. They kept going because they knew that they were solely wanted to please Jesus and not the voices and plans of others. And yes, we need wise counsel. Yes, we need to hear other people's opinions. But at times, God will say one thing and we need to single-mindedly go after it despite what others think. It might seem totally ridiculous or absurd, but that's so often how God says, look, just go for it. Just go for it. And I'll follow Jesus no matter what the cost. Following Jesus like these guys in the hall of faith, that is what marked them. But then in Hebrews 12, which I just want to open up briefly, it says, okay, but what about me? What about us? Paul's now speaking to the readers. He's saying, look, what about you? What about the reader, the listener of the day? So I'm going to read from Hebrews 12, 1 to 3, really briefly. It'll be on the screen. But just this is what Paul finishes by saying to us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance for fate, the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so you will not grow weary and lose heart. I'm just going to read that again, actually, but Paul switched from 
the Hebrews Hall of Faith now to us. This is what he wants us to listen to. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He says to us to be part of a cloud of witnesses. He says, these are the people in the past. These are the heroes you look up to. But now the baton is passed to you. The baton is passed to me. And scholars aren't really sure why Paul talks about the cloud of witnesses, but it's basically saying there's numerous, there's place for each and every one of us. There's place for each and every one of us to be living a heroic life of faith and adventure for God. Do we want to join that cloud of witnesses? He said, I gave it all. I gave everything for the sake of Jesus. And then it says to throw everything off. Throw off those sins. Not like everything, just to clarify. Keep your clothes on. That was a terrible, Liv enjoyed that one, terrible. Um, but what's holding us back? Who or what holding us back? What sins or habits or things are holding us back from being all we are called into? One of the paradoxes of the kingdom, I think, is that less is more. And the, the more of Jesus in us, the, simple, the simpler our lives come, the more devoted we come to him. It's the paradox of the kingdom that we less is more. And he says to run with perseverance, to throw off things and then run with perseverance. And the word here for race denotes conflict and trouble. It's the same word that Paul uses elsewhere in the New Testament to say, look, this is the race. There will be challenges. There will be opposition. There will be conflict. But go for it. Run the race. But it also recognizes that the race is for those beyond us. It's not just for our gain. It's for those in the future so we can pass the baton on, so we can live a life for generations to come, so we can influence politics and schools and the government and whatever else for the future generations to go beyond us. The guys in the Hall of Faith were revered in Jewish history. Do we want to live a life where we said, look, for the sake of Jesus, I made a difference in this world. And then the key thing here, it says, fix our eyes on Jesus. And the Greek word, I think it's apparentus. I've got no idea about Greek, but I just found it in a book. And it, and it basically says that the word here says that fixing our eyes on Jesus is whole out, all out attention on him and away from distractions of others. So we don't look at others, we focus solely on him. Our eyes are solely focused on him. I've read a book recently by a guy called Andy Croft and in it he says the history of a church has never been about great men and women of God. It has always been about the great God of men and women. The history of the church has never been about great men and women of God. It has always been about the great God of men and women. Our focus is to fix our eyes on Jesus and to give everything for him who has endured the cross for us. To keep our eyes on the prize, to have an eternal perspective, to say, I will do whatever it takes because he lived and dies and rose again for me. He's been there, he's done it, he's triumphed on the cross, I will give it my all. And it even says in this passage that true joy comes from that place of recognizing that you'll be with him in eternity and you can face whatever is before us. What does it look like for us to have that kind of faith, to live that life of adventure and courage? 
I wonder if you'll humor me, and you've probably been wondering what this incredible illustration is over here. Kira, when I told Kira, she's like, what are you doing? But anyway, just humor me, okay? But if you imagine this is like a balance beam, it's a pretty bad one. I'm slightly nervous right now because I'm not convinced it'll hold me, and I'm also not convinced that in front of a few hundred people, this could go tra tragically wrong. Incidentally, I completely stacked it outside Sentry the other day, but no one saw, so that's fine. But if you imagine we're walking over this balance beam, if I said to you now, raise a hand if you're prepared to walk over this. Raise a hand if you're prepared to walk over this. All of us, right? Come on, all of us could do this. Well, hopefully, not in front of everyone, admittedly, but all of us could do this, right? But then I said to you, okay, imagine this was a few hundred meters in the air. Imagine this was high as a mountain. Then suddenly fear would creep in. You'd be like, no, not a chance. I wouldn't do it, because although I know I can do this, I'd be like, the fear is too great to step out. We too easily limit ourselves because of fear. Like that guy, Ant Middleton, says, we focus and we don't allow fear to distract or limit us. We go for the prize. Or as this passage talks around, the other thing is we, we look to the right or to the left. We look what others are doing. We're distracted by the voices of others. We're distracted by, well, why has that person got this? Why is that person doing this? And it takes my eyes off the attention. I've never walked a tightrope, but they say when you walk a tightrope, the key thing is you look straight ahead because the balance is kept in your head. We don't get distracted by those to the right or to the left. We don't get distracted by fear. We keep our focus forward. And equally, as this passage talks around, we get rid of sins and anything that weighs us down. If I was to walk across this, which I'm bravely going to do in a moment, you'll be delighted to hear, you take off weight and anything that's holding you back. You want it to be as easy as possible. What things and distractions are there? And then I'm genuinely quite nervous now about this. You walk across. Ah. Wow, what a hero. <laughs> Incredible. If you, didn't, if you didn't see that over there, you really didn't miss anything. But, but we focus our eyes on Jesus. We keep our eyes on the prize. We keep solely focused on him. And we walk across and say, look, I will not allow fear. I will not allow comparison. I will not allow the voices of others to limit me. I will take that step of faith. And tonight we've got two guys getting baptized and I'm delighted because there's really no better way of saying I'm all in. I want to publicly declare my faith in Jesus. I want to commit my life to him than getting baptized. People often ask, well, why do we get baptized? It's simply if it was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. And some of his last words are, go and do likewise, get baptized. And as these guys go in the water, they're going to go under the water and die to their old lives as Jesus died for them. And they're going to come out of the water and say, I, I live with him, the resurrected Savior. I believe he lived and rose again for me. So we've talked tonight about the heroes of faith, those who lived and died and had whole out attention on God. But what does it look like for us to add our name to that list? What does it mean for me? What does it mean for you tonight? Are we going to allow what others say or limitations or safety or comfort to limit us? Or are we going to say, I'm going to be all out and just go wherever he wants me to go, be whoever he wants me to be, do whatever he wants me to do? I want to ask us as we finish, what is our God gap? Where is it that God needs to step up? And if he doesn't step up, then we are completely limited. We are absolutely scuppered. We step into this place of risk and say, God, if you don't come and meet me halfway, then I have got no chance. But that is a step of faith, a step of courage. Because we recognize as we step out with God, 
God plus one is always victorious. And we recognize that we cannot outgive God. We cannot outgive God. What does it mean for us tonight to have childlike faith? To say, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I will go wherever you want me to go. I'll be whoever you want me to be. I love the film Amazing Grace. It's typically Christian and cheesy, but it's really good. Really worth a watch. And there's a great part in it where William Pitt, who is to become a prime minister, is chatting with Wilberforce, who is trying to is a key person ending the abolition of slave trade. And Wilberforce says to him when they're talking about this abolition and how they want to end abolition of a slave trade, and obviously what an incredible thing it was. He says, but, but no one of our age has ever done anything like this. No one has ever done this before. How are we going to do it? And, he, and Pitt says to him, is this why you're too young to realize that certain things are impossible, so you'll do them anyway? We won't allow the limitations or the expectations of others or the pressures of the world to limit what we believe God is calling us to. As I was praying for tonight, I was just challenged by two things, really, and I thought these were just useful to share. The first is, as we come to things tonight, we, we almost forget that the God who we worship tonight is the same God, the same powerful God who's with us tomorrow at the workplace. We almost think it's like a different God. That same God goes with us. Or it's the same God with us at the university lecture or at the school gates this week. It's the same God who goes with us. Or we go to these festivals, Soul Survivor or Spring Harvest or whatever, and we think it's almost like a different God, but no, it's the same God who goes with us. And he wants to go with us and allow our faith in him to be realized throughout this week in our work, in our student life, or whatever it entails. And the other thing I just really felt that God wanted to, to challenge is that some of us understandably have questions and doubts. We have stuff we're struggling with, stuff that doesn't quite add up, and that's okay. But God almost wants to challenge us to say, look, as you step out, as you step and take that step of faith and go for it, even though you haven't got everything ironed out, I will start to help you realize the questions and the struggles on the way. Just trust me. Just trust me. I'm with you. I'll hold your hand. I'll walk that journey with you. The band are going to come up, and I'm just going to pray for us just as we draw this sermon to a close. Uh, Zach, that wasn't very helpful. <laughs> You've really killed a moment, actually. <laughs> this is quite, yeah, yeah, that's good. <laughs> Let me pray for us. Lord, we just thank you that you are alive and real. And we thank you there's a tangible sense of you just meeting with us in the worship and through us gathering together this evening. And I pray, Lord, that every person in this building tonight will just know what our God gap, our faith step is. Whether we are here for literally the first time or whether we've been Christians for 70 years, I pray that we would just trust our life again back into your hands and again take risks and courageous steps for youth and say, look, Lord, I'm all in. I don't know all the answers. I don't have all the things ironed out, all the I's dotted and T's crossed, but I will trust you. I will go wherever you want me to go. I'll be whoever you want me to be. I'll do whatever you ask of me because I want to dedicate my life to you. Holy Spirit, come. And I pray that it will be just such a tangible sense of your love sending us out. As we learn about that boy jumping to the father's arms of love, I pray too that it would be from a place of love that we want to step out for you, not from a place of conviction or condemnation. 
Holy Spirit, just remind us now as we worship how much you love us and that our best life is one of adventure and risk and taking steps of faith for you. Holy Spirit, come, we pray.